Some listeners may find the following content disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, y'all, yuns and yuns. Welcome to the Appalachian Crime Trail podcast. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Nikki. And And I'm fighting a cold. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, I am drinking from, we both have this mug, but Nikki is not drinking from it. She's drinking from her her Yeti. (laughs) Um, But it's. I like how I'm trying to show it off as if anyone can see it. <laughs> you can see. It says, bitch, please, I'm from West Virginia. And uh, I got them at Wolf Creek Gallery in Lewisburg, West Virginia. So shout out to Wolf Creek for getting the awesome mugs. And if you are in Lewisburg, definitely check them out and see if they have more mugs. We haven't yes. got to see each other for a little while. And I'm so happy that Kirsten's here. I've missed her. Yes. I'm so happy. It's wonderful. Oh, by the way, so I've got to tell my Walmart Tire Center has redeemed themselves story because, okay, as you know from the last podcast, or well, well, I guess it'll be the last two episode, two episodes oh, yeah. after this one's because we're recording the spooky Halloween spooky. episode, so it'll be two podcast episodes later. Is it was it spooky? Is that what the kids say nowadays? Spooky. Is this what the episode's gonna be called? Spooky. So Walmart Tire Center has redeemed themselves, y'all. Uh. Ended up, got my tires on up there a week after the first incident because, well, let's be honest, they were the cheapest around. Got my tires on literally like three or four days after I got my tires on, got a flat. I ran over something and got a flat. Oh, it gets better. I got the flat while I was at work. So one of the guys that works in maintenance helped me change it. Well, while we were changing it, mind you, whenever I got them on, they broke one lug nut off or one wheel stud. Yeah, wheel stud off. Wait, Walmart did? Yeah, because they said it was cross-threaded. Right. And I use that in quotations. And I was so irritated at that point. I was like, I don't care if you break it off. Just I need tires. Look at my tires. They're terrible because they work. So whenever the fella at work is helping me change my flat... Guess what happened? What? Another wheel stud broke off because it was cross-threaded or something. I don't so know. So what, what this is, is a after wheel stud? I, okay, so wheel stud is the little bolt that comes out of the metal part on your tire itself. You know what I'm talking about? Or not oh, your tire, but on the... I know exactly what you're talking about. I wish I could draw a diagram. No, I know. That doesn't I, I rem- Okay. Yeah. I'm, I so another one of those broke off when we were trying to change my flat. So I had three left. There's only five on a wheel. So... Carefully drive up to Walmart on my little donut. I went ahead. I was like, I'm going to take my lunch break. It's going to be a longer break. Blah, blah, blah. Let my boss know. She's like, that's cool. Get up to Walmart. I'll let the dude out in the garage know. It's this big, huge, like, six foot five burly man. Very nice. I told him, I was like, hey, got a flat. I've got roadside hazard warranty. He said, great. We'll fix you on up. He said, it might be a little bit. We'll squeak you in in between people coming in. I said, okay, cool. So I was up there for about... 30, 45 minutes, and I'm like, okay, this is taking a while, so I went outside, and when I come back in, I didn't see Big Man out in the garage. Walk into the tire center inside, and he's behind the desk, and I was just like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) And I walk up to him, and he goes, well, I've got bad news, and I was like, let me guess, another tire stud breaks off. He's like, yes, (laughs) ma'am. And I was like... Okay. He's like, you realize that only leaves two left? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and I'm like fighting back tears and all I can think in my head is, I will not fucking cry at Walmart. I refuse <laughs> to cry at Walmart. I was so stressed and angry. 
And he goes, yeah, we can't let you drive that because it's not safe. Right. I mean, like, literally, your wheel could just go flying off down the road. So what do they and have I was to replace? Like, the actual studs that go into the metal part of the wheel Is that itself. expensive? No, they're, like, not that expensive. So he tells me that, and he's like, man, we're going to have to tow your car. And I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm going to cry. This big old burly man looks at me and goes, ma'am, please don't cry. I don't know what to do if you cry. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I'm trying not to right now. I can't afford a tow bill. He's like, well, we're going to pay for it. And I was like, okay. I was like, can you tow it to my house? It's kind of far. He's like, well, we can, but we are going to go ahead and tow it to a garage. And I was like, you can't tow it to a garage. I start freaking out again. I was like, I don't have the money to pay for this. I am a poor woman. I do not have the money to pay for a bill at the garage. He's like, ma'am, ma'am, don't cry, please. <laughs> And I was like, I'm not crying, but I'm really close. And he was like, well, we're going to pay for that, too. And I was like, oh. <laughs> okay, cool. Because they can't do it? So, or No, they just... can't do that kind of stuff at the Walmart garage. Because it's just a tire and lube center or whatever the heck. Mm-hmm. So they had to tow my car to a local garage. And at that local gar- garage, they replaced all the wheel studs on that wheel. And Walmart paid for it all. I have to say, they were amazing. Like, their customer service was A1 because I was so, like, stressed out. And, I mean, it seems like that's just, like, first world problems. Don't get me wrong. But... It's so stressful when your car breaks Yeah, because I was, like, I'm by myself there. I just left work is all. So, I had to call my boss and say, hey, I'm not coming back in because I'm still at Walmart. And it was, like, 3 o'clock by that point. Right. Luckily, the man friend was uptown. And so, I called him and I was, like, I need you to come get me in... Had to tell him everything. And he's like, well, we're going to have to pay. And I was like, no, we're not going to have to pay. We're paying for it. And he's like, oh, okay. (laughs) I was so stressed. And, like, they were so nice up there. And they were, I couldn't ask for better customer service. I didn't get anybody's names, unfortunately. If you work at the Walmart Tire Center in Lewisburg and you helped me that day, A1, you all are fantastic. I cannot praise you all enough after the nightmare I went through that day. Honestly, the people at the Lewisburg Walmart are... They're always really friendly. Well, I've never come across anybody that works up there that's not. No, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, I, I know I've had friends who worked at Walmart in different areas, and mm-hmm. I've been to, you know, plenty of Walmarts, but there is something, because, you know, I told my Walmart story oh, yeah. about, but, yeah. like, the pharmacists are always so kind. It's the same people. I guess mm-hmm. I just go to Walmart too often, but, like, I recognize, you know, the people there and they're always so nice and they check on you and it's the same at like some of the other grocery stores Mm -hmm. in places that I live near that I'm not gonna say that's something I feel like you don't always get I don't get that feeling at Kroger I will say that Kroger's hit and miss, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> so. All my friends were like, Walmart's trash, Kroger is bougie in college. And I'm like, you know, Walmart has cheaper things for the same exact product. You can buy it at Walmart for cheaper. So I'm going to go to Walmart. And they were like, no. And I got a Kroger. Yeah. So... I don't... I have, like, so many stories this week. Well... I feel like I'm just going to ramble on if I talk about them. Yeah. I don't really have... I mean, I could talk about the fish saga at my house, but other than that, I don't really have anything. I went to my first WVU football game. That's awesome. And it was homecoming weekend, wasn't it? homecoming. So, very first time I've ever been to a WVU football game. I still haven't been. I, like, hardcore watched WVU football anyways. Being there at the stadium and getting to see it, even though we lost to Texas, horns down. I do have to say, we sat behind some really awesome Texas fans, though, Any of the Texas fans I met were super nice and super awesome. The two that were sitting in front of us, because I went and stayed with my best friend, the two Texas fans that were sitting in front of us were awesome. We were, like, bannering back and forth with them, and they kept buying us beers like crazy. And the beers at the stadium are, like, They're huge. huge. Oh, my God. 
So I got a little drunky pants. It was so much fun. Like, the camaraderie, even between, like, the opposing teens fans and the, like, people I didn't know that I had just met that Mm -hmm. were sitting around us and stuff. Everybody was, like, fantastic. And it was just, oh, God, it was so good. There was one point during the game, and it was right after we got tied up that very first time we had with Texas, where it was, like, Mm 7-7. And the crowd wasn't too hyped up. You know, they were just like, "Uh, uh, whatever. I'm sitting there, and I guess to hype up the crowd... You know what they played on the big screen? Hmm. And it gave me chills and I teared up. They played Coach Stu's never the the no leave no doubt speech that Coach Bill Stewart did. Did you have you never seen that? No. <gasps> I'm getting chills like literally just thinking about it because I have a soft spot for Coach Stu. Uh-huh. I mean he came in and helped show the team love right when we got dumped off by fucking Rich Rod and his bullshit when he decided to dip out right before we went to bowl. The Leave No Doubt speech by Coach Bill Stewart is probably, I would say, one of the best, like, college football coach speeches ever. Huh. It's amazing. I'm a person who cries at the marching band, so that's my thing. Simple gifts. That Uh, circle. Every damn time. Mm -hmm. Every time. I've seen it so much. I just, I can't get over it. I just love it so much. It's so great. Anyway, this week, in terms of addressing Appalachian stereotypes, the internet, (laughs) or at least the West Virginia internet, (laughs) exploded because there is an actress. She's an actress, correct? She's an actress slash comedian. Okay. And which I, I mean, I didn't really mind her before. I hadn't really seen a lot of her stuff. Her name's Whitney Cummings. She was on the Late Late, yeah, Late 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 Show with with James James Corden. Apparently, she found out that she is from West Virginia. Her dad dad is from us. Yeah, her dad has roots from West Virginia, and went off and like, what did I mean? She said something about her. No, did she say something about her teeth? I feel like she did. No, she. So long story short, she called us the skin tag of Virginia and the taint of Kentucky. I mean, really? Really? I just don't understand. And she she made fun of, like, West Virginians not having teeth and this and that. Yeah. Just the same bullshit that we've always heard. Like, oh, and that and, and we fight bears. Yeah. We, we're scary and fight yeah. off bears. And I think in some sense... I think she was trying to say, like, that one in kind of a positive way. I don't know. But I just, why, A, if you've never been to West Virginia. Right. Why are you attacking the state? And it's not, I don't, there's no one that I've seen from West Virginia who's found that funny. No. Everyone that I've seen post about it has found it very negative and condescending. We're trying to fight this stereotype and then that's the material she chooses to use for her quote unquote comedy during her interview with James Corden. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like, she's saying all the same bullshit that we've always heard. Like, if you're going to make fun of West Virginia, pick something new. Mm -hmm. I mean, pick something we ain't heard that might actually be humorous to us. Like, make fun of her pepperoni rolls or make fun of uh, no, don't make fun of pepperoni well, rolls because they are. I'm a vegan and they are amazing. Like <laughs> she's like they are so. Fantastic. I've always just taken this as any other vegan that's listening to this is going to be like you were not a vegan. I will just still take the pepperoni out of the pepperoni roll and just eat it because the pepperoni grease. I just 
in the roll. That's it. That's all I you want. You do realize that the bread's not vegan in those either. I right? know. I don't care. <laughs> You're like, I'm not eating the meat at least. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. Like, I haven't eaten a pepperoni roll in a very long time. But the point is, is that I used to eat them like that when I was eating meat. Yeah. I just don't like pepperoni. But, I mean, my thing is, like, quit making fun of the same shit that we've heard, like, mm-hmm. nonstop. And then what really pissed me off, she pretty much subtweeted the whole state mm-hmm. with the whole, like, I guess you have to apologize for everything nowadays or something like that. We didn't ask for your damn apology. She's, Here's the thing. I don't give a shit if you apologize. And I saw a couple of other people on Twitter say this. We don't care if you apologize. What we care about is you acting in some way, shape, or form better because she got called out on your bullshit and to try to learn about us. Well, and she's using her platform that she has, obviously. And I look, yeah. she has like over a million followers on Twitter. Yeah. So she has this large platform. She could be using it in a way to say, uh, maybe I should look into my roots if that's yeah. really what I want to do. Just be aware of what you're saying. I mean, and everyone makes mistakes. Don't get me wrong. <coughs> but she went on that shit Whitney did for like a couple minutes. And then she asked James Corden to take down the video. Which, by the way, James Corden ain't fucking innocent in this either. Because he was laughing along with it and like... Who was the guy with her? Because he was like... Oh, it's the dude from the West Wing. Oh, okay. Oh, what's his name? I just remember him being on the West Wing. I can't remember what his name is. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I think it's like Bradley something, but I don't know. Well, he said at the end... Bradley Whitford. Yeah, something like that. He said at the end, he's like, they're not going to welcome you if you... Because she said she wanted to buy a house. And he's like, I don't think after what you just said, they're going to welcome you. And I was like... He knows what's going on. Yeah, he's like, this is not good. This is not smart. (laughs) Yeah. I don't... Has like Jennifer Garner or anyone, Brad Paisley, reacted to it? I don't think so. I so, wish they probably would. Probably because they're like... They're PR people or... Be like, just stay out of this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just if I say anything problematic, like, call me out on my shit. But, Do it nicely. But yes, please call me out on my bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sick and tired of this state getting shit on. We're already the lowest ranked in everything. Like, yeah. I mean, what else do you... We know that we have issues. <laughs> like, well, and here's the thing. We're a state that was bled for its resources to build this country. Yeah. And uh, th- there's a prime example that. of that in my story today of yeah. Weston. You yeah. Know, so. I mean, people don't realize that. They're like, oh, we're going to shoot on West Virginia yet again. It's like, okay, well, listen here, motherfuckers. If you wasn't for us, y'all wouldn't have your big high-rise buildings because guess where the coal to make the steel came from? Yeah. West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Guess where the steel probably came from? Pennsylvania, even? Like, Appalachia. And, has... Appalachia in general. Like, Appalachia in general has been shit on and shit on and shit on. Not just West Virginia. But we've been blood of our resources to build this country, and nobody remembers. Well, and it's the people that live in Appalachia have willingly, many, many times, sacrificed a lot for Mm -hmm. this country in more ways than one. Not just, you know, by fighting in the military or anything, but also Mm -hmm. coal mining and logging and any kind of industry is so dangerous. And it's, it's always been about resources rather than the people i don't know i feel like we could just talk forever about this but it just that that (laughs) lady made me mad when it comes to like the history aspect of the labor movement of the state and appalachia i could go down a wormhole with you you'd be like well i'll never get through this night i know it's i love history and i feel like it could never end and i'd be okay with that because there's so much there speaking of history i'm going on my old professor jonathan berkey he's a professor of history Excuse me, Dr. Jonathan Berkey. Dr. Berkey. He is a professor of history at Concord, where I went to college at and graduated from. And he has invited me to be on his radio show that he has called Three Songs, 
where I have to pick three songs that mean something to me and like a little blurb for each one, like one to two sentence blurb for each one to tell why I chose that song. Can I just tell you that was the hardest damn thing ever trying to narrow down three songs. I was going to say that would be really hard for me to choose like three songs. I mean, I've been stewing on this for a month and a half. Yeah. So well, I can already think of like five songs. <laughs> yeah. One that came in close and I was like, I don't know if I want to feel like crying right in front of Dr. Berkey, but the the one version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, you know what I'm talking about, the Hawaiian version of it. Um, yes. I cannot remember that gentleman's name, but God, it's beautiful and it's fantastic. Yeah, Israel something. Um, but that was almost one, but that was like the song. My mom loved and adored that song, and she would play it for me at random times, like when I was sad, because... One, Wizard of Oz is my favorite movie of all time. It's just the one with the ukulele. It's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This one. is just going to be a singing podcast now. Uh-huh. Um, there's so many times that when I'm editing and Nikki's just like singing in the background. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, okay. Even like, though I can't sing at all. It's, it's hilarious, <laughs> but like it won't be like a segue into yeah. anything. It'll just be like pauses where we're doing something and it happens to be recording. And then yeah. I just hear like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anything else you want to talk about this um, week before we get our... No, because I'm sure this has probably went on long enough as it is. Yeah, okay, let's get started on some spoopy story. Spooky. is kind of um special i guess for halloween i am doing the trans allegheny lunatic asylum so it's i mean i guess it's true crime related because there's some really things that probably should have people people yeah (laughs) people should have been arrested for some of this stuff but they weren't so the trans allegheny lunatic asylum is located in western west virginia and i looked up the definition of a couple words because i was interested you know sometimes we use words and i just don't know what the exact definition is and i i'm just gonna give a vocabulary lesson because I'm weird. So asylum initially meant an institution offering shelter and support to people who are mentally ill. Lunatic (laughs) is an antiquated term for a mentally ill person, but it can also mean dangerous, foolish, crazy, and comes from lunaticus, lunaticus, lunaticus. Sure. (laughs) I can't talk. L-U-N-A-T-I-C-U-S. Lunatic. But it's Latin. But it means of the moon or moonstruck. (laughs) Lunatic is, you know, used to describe someone that's a little crazy. And like now, you know, we use asylum. It is offering shelter or support, but it's not necessarily for like mentally ill because you have a bunch of people seeking asylum that are refugees. And they're just seeking asylum from the horrible things happening in their country. That's your vocabulary lesson for this Halloween. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum has also been known as the Weston State Hospital or the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. So it changed to Weston State Hospital, but then after it closed and was bought by the current owner, it was changed back to Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum to help market it as a historical 
scary touring site. So it was built between 1858 and 1881, but surprise, it opened in 1864, and then they continued to build. Fun fact, there are so many fun facts about this. It sits on 666 acres. Isn't that crazy? That fucker was doomed from the get-go. I know. Well, that's, I saw it in an article, because a lot of the stuff I looked, I looked on, like, the asylum's actual website, and then I looked at it's a lot of like blogs or people that do like the haunting TV shows and stuff, their websites. So, you know, I was trying to take stuff, certain stuff with a grain of salt and I saw that multiple places. So it's on 666 acres. Yeah. So it opened in 1864, which if you didn't know, that was during the civil war and quick history lesson for those of you who aren't as familiar with the civil war. Cause I feel like since we live in West Virginia, we know more about it and maybe people that like, we have like one listener in Canada, okay? At least one. Oh, and hey. so this is just for you if you don't know <laughs> about the American Civil War or the United States Civil War, because I guess we all live in uh, America. In Canada. Oh, Can you just say hi to us? Like, on- <laughs> the Civil War happened between 1861 and 1865, and it was fighting between the North and the South, and basically was fighting over. I don't really want to cause issues, but. There's a lot to it, and so I'm just going to say, there was lots of fighting, people died. The end. So, um, in... Because would be very proud of this one. You know, I just don't want to get into it with the whole like. Is that a proper synopsis, Doctor Berkey? You tell us. You're welcome. Now we're going to talk about just uh, building the um, asylum and kind of a little bit of details about that because there there is a significance to how it was built. So, like I said, it was built in between uh, 1858 and 1881, and it was built using the Kirkbride method. So Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride was a man who he wanted to be a surgeon originally, but then he decided to come back to the field of mentally ill for the money. He came back to the field basically for the money and the stability because there's always going to be people be people that are mentally ill. And so he believed in the moral treatment of the mentally ill. And one of the ways that he believed you could do that was by providing lots of air and sunlight and outlets. So for artistic things and creative outlets, things like that. If you go to Weston and go to the asylum, also I might say Weston interchangeably is just talking about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum because it's Weston State Hospital. I don't know. People that I grew up with, that's how we kind of refer to it. If you get confused, I'm not necessarily talking about the town of Weston. I'm talking about the asylum. Weston was designed in like a shallow V formation with long wings that had ample sunlight and was designed to be entirely self-sufficient. One of the ways that they were able to do that was by having farms and like different buildings for severely mentally ill patients and older people to like go in and things like that. So there are multiple other buildings that were built as part of this. I found this, this is a quote, that the walls were two and a half feet thick and they were quote, dense enough to muffle the screams of even the most tormented soul alive or dead. Damn. So you like get this whole like, Weston is the largest hand cut stone masonry building in North America, which is pretty cool. And as a person who architecture is not something that I'm super gung-ho about when I study history. So I wrote it down because I felt like that was notable, but that's as far as I'm going into that. So there you go. I'm going to skip a little bit 
back but forward to the Civil War again because this is important. If you didn't know this, in 1863, West Virginia became its own state. And if you still think that we're part of Virginia, you are wrong. (laughs) Um, We seceded from Virginia in 1863. And Weston was important in that because there was this huge robbery that happened in Weston for I'm not going to get into the details of it because it's not this I mean I guess it's kind of true crime related but not enough that I wanted to spend five minutes talking about it um but basically they stole this money and took it to Wheeling and we're like we're gonna create the new state of Virginia which later became West Virginia so that happened in Weston and then at one point Weston was used as Camp Tyler so like the building was used as a military post and also if you don't understand the geography weston's pretty much like almost smack dab in the middle of the state like it's pretty central in west virginia um so like it's a good military yeah this also because of this and because of the asylum being built a lot of places experienced like a depression after the war especially the south weston did not experience the post-war depression and then i wrote until 130 years later when it closed down (laughs) But, I mean, so they sustained it for 130 years. Super proud of them. Weston was a huge part of the economy, and that is pretty standard for small West Virginia towns, honestly. Like, you know, coal mining or logging or what are other economy things in this state? Oil. Usually it's like, or education, like teachers, or if there's a hospital. Like, those are the biggest employers that bring people into that town. And then when they shut down, it can be really, really devastating. So it was a huge part of the economy. So originally, Weston was built to house 250 patients. But when you get into the 1950s, they were housing 2,600 patients. Holy crap. For a building that was only built to house 250. And this led to bed sharing, which was basically where they would, each patient was allowed eight hours in that bed. And then the next patient, would get the bed. Not everyone that was there was mentally ill. There were a variety of reasons in its 130 years that people were sent to West End. And I wrote down some of my favorites for your listening pleasure. (laughs) So some of them like asthma or which, okay, but okay. At first I wrote it down. I was like, asthma, I have asthma. Also, a lot of these things I would, man, I would be locked up there for life. Fucked. <laughs> Pretty much. But asthma, but I can understand too at that time, like if they didn't have somewhere that could help you and that was where a lot of medical people were and they were able to like give you medical care because inhalers weren't, I mean, how old are inhalers? They're not that old well, yeah, true. in the, the scheme of things. But asthma, rabies, childbirth. What? I don't know. I mean, let's be real. Childbirth would make my ass crazy. Well, <laughs> menstrual derangement. <laughs> Me every every month. Once a month for um, like five days. <laughs> laziness. <laughs> masturbation. Desertion of husband. I mean, look, if he's trifling. Well, no. And then I read basically. his ass too. <laughs> wives who... And, and then another one was wives who are insubordinate to their husbands. And basically at that time, men could leave their wife, like just drop her off at the asylum. And then he could leave her there. And if he didn't want to come pick her up, then she became a war of the state. Because, you know, technically women are property, right? So in other words, basically this was like, 
Let's see how we can pawn the women of the state off to an asylum ward. Pretty much. Okay. A couple more. Indigestion. Bad whiskey. So I'm not sure if that means like alcohol poisoning or just like doubting one's ancestry. I do think this is one case because I saw it multiple places oh, and phrased different ways, but uh-huh. I, I, it made me laugh a lot. And oh, then God. one of my favorites, which my poor mom would automatically be locked up for, reading too many novels. I was like, that's me. So there's multiple reasons I would be in there. Asthma's asthmas. I literally would be locked up for like everything besides abandoning your childbirth. Yeah, I was gonna say childbirth. And abandoning your husband. So those are, those are my favorite reasons that people got locked up in the asylum. Among others, you know, obviously like actual mental illness was a thing that people were just kind of very misunderstood then. Well, and it, it was more like we're throwing these people in the asylum and we don't want we don't want to deal with them because i i read on the asylum's website that they were talking about the history of mental illness before mm-hmm. and like with the colonies and things like that and people would hide their family members in like holes and sheds and so when they had these buildings they were like this is a place we can finally get rid of them at and honestly like <laughs> they would burn their family members at the stake yeah well and that's what they they said they were like they think a lot of the people that were claimed as witches either were not witches i mean they could have been witches that's cool too or they were mentally ill yeah which is just very distressing. Those are some interesting reasons through history of people just being shitty. So then in 1990, the asylum became a national historic landmark, which I thought was important because of history and stuff, because that also allots them to getting funding to help preserve the building, which is really good. In the 1980s and the 1990s, the Charleston Gazette did some awesome sleuth work and basically exposed the horrible conditions in the asylum that led to its closing in 1994. And I wrote down a couple things that I noticed that were pretty terrible. I was telling Nikki last night, I was researching this and I, there was some stuff, I just stopped reading certain articles because there's some really horrible things that happened that led to its closing. But some of the conditions included no heating. If you, I mean, not so much anymore in West Virginia because global warming, but you know, back then we had snow and it was, it gets really cold. So I can't imagine being in those. And I've been in, when I went to Philadelphia in the penitentiary there, like Eastern state, it was April. It was April 1st and it was rainy, but we were just in there and we had jackets on and it was so cold. I can't imagine being in like those buildings, like, and it was built in a similar fashion. Yeah. There was broken furniture everywhere. There was feces on the wall. And then two unfortunate deaths happened. One was a nurse who I don't, I didn't find if they ever found out like who did it, but she was murdered by patients and then left for two months because she was at the bottom of a very rarely used stairwell and they called the police and the police apparently didn't search the building because if Uh, you did a search of the building you'd find her then they found her two months later and then a patient committed suicide and his body wasn't found for eight days those are just some of the things that led to the reason it closed in 1994 it was later bought by the person who currently owns it and he turned it into a tourist attraction what it is so they do history tours but they also do haunted house tours and and different things like that i'm gonna get into some of the stories 
regarding the asylum. Uh, So they have had Ghost Hunters in 2008 and then Ghost Adventures in 2009. And Ghost Adventures actually did a seven-hour live televised investigation on how... On really? They did it on Halloween Eve, which is pretty cool. And basically... It was kind of dumb, but it was kind of Right. Well, anyone that's been there based on these stories and then people that are ghost hunters, you know, most people believe it's haunted in some way. I've seen claims that it is one of the most haunted buildings in North America. I'm going to talk about some things that happened to inmates and patients at the asylum, why some people, these are people that are believed to still be there in spirit or whatever form you believe or don't believe. There were a lot of torturous conditions. There were a lot of horrible things that they did to these people, whether it be because they thought they would actually help these people or whether because doctors were psycho. Examples of these torturous conditions include ice pick lobotomies, being shackled to walls, being immersed in ice water, being exposed to electric shock, electroshock therapy, which is still used today, but it is not the scary thing that we see in the movies like it was back then. And being forced to be subject to insulin therapy, which basically puts you into a coma if it doesn't kill you. That just gives you an idea of some of the horrible things that happened to people there. I'm going to start with my stories. The first one, which is the most prominent story, is of this little girl named Lily. They're not sure who Lily is in the scheme of things. There are two stories that I read, but the one that's most believed is that her mother was committed and was pregnant when she was committed and gave birth to Lily. And poor Lily, no matter what story that states how she originated at the asylum, there was a girl named Lily who died at nine from complications of pneumonia. So that's believed to be this Lily. There is actually a room called Lily's room on the first floor. And I saw a picture and there's just toys everywhere. And it's really creepy. But she likes to play with people and roll balls back and forth with people. And they call her an intellectual spirit because she interacts with humans. And people that are ghost hunters have said that, I can't remember which one it was, said they rolled the ball back and forth with Lily for 45 minutes. And I'm like, that doesn't just happen. Like, you can't just roll a ball with nothing for 45 minutes, you know? She'll also move toys in response to just respond to you. There's also said to be multiple spirits of young children there, but Lily is the most prominent. The next story has to do with, there was a guy named Slewfoot. S-L-E-W-F-O-O-T. So I guess Slewfoot had murdered people, but then he got murdered by two people. And so I think Slewfoot still haunts there, but he was a murderer as well, supposedly. There's also an unnamed multi-murderer who haunts the dungeon. Story number three, (laughs) I numbered these stories so I could keep track. Story number three, so Dr. Walter Freeman, who if you're familiar with him, it's because he popularized ice pick lobotomies. And he also was the doctor who performed the ice pick lobotomy on Rosemary Kennedy, JFK's oh. sister. So he was a traveling doctor. So he frequented the asylum a lot. And I couldn't verify whether it was him because it said one doctor, but I also saw an article say it was him. But either way, one doctor in 1952 performed 228 ice pick lobotomies in two weeks. 
228. The ice pick lobotomy, this is kind of graphic, so if this grosses you out, just just don't listen to me. Skip like 30 seconds. It's basically where they stick like a tool that looks like an ice pick through your eye socket until it touches your brain, and then they basically like fuck you over, and they thought it was supposed to help alleviate these like mental illness symptoms, but what it really ended up doing was either killing people or rendering them... A vegetable. a vegetable like they couldn't do anything for me there were a lot of graphic things about the lobotomies and i just couldn't read those articles it just ugh. story number four this is the one i told you nikki so two inmates tried to hang someone and kill him well it didn't work so then they placed his head under the bed frame of a bed and jumped on it until it touched the floor this man who was killed supposedly was named dean and dean died due to this and dean supposedly still haunts the room that he was murdered in if i was dean i would too i'd be pissed off yeah so So this story is just generally about people that died there so people obviously died at the asylum and when they died if their families did not want to come and claim them or claim their body uh they would be assigned a number and they would be buried in a cemetery. Weston was basically like its own city. It could function on its own because, I mean, it could provide food yeah. for people. It had, like, medical care. Like, it had all these things. And it had a cemetery. I mean, it it could do its own thing. And, and it was on 666 acres, which is bigger than some towns. So they would be buried in the cemetery with just a headstone that had a number. But most of those headstones have disappeared or have faded at this point that they can't really tell who is buried. So I'm not sure if the records are lost or if they didn't keep track of the records. But um, they can't tell, like, who's buried there. And nobody was ever cremated. So they were just buried. So they're just, like, a bunch of bodies there. Nice. If that freaks you out. Which, I mean, I don't know. I like cemeteries, but then I think about that part of it, and it freaks me out a lot. One more specific story, and then I'll talk about the general things that people hear there. This is my favorite story. I relate to this woman a lot in many ways. Her name is Ruth. Ruth hated men when she was alive and she used to throw things at them and apparently she still does as a ghost. Ruth is my spirit. I know. I was like, Ruth, I want to be your friend. So general things that people see, uh, and this is anyone from visitors to the tour guides that work there to ghost hunters they see ghosts walking through walls they've seen balls of light moving quickly down hallways doors closed by themselves there's banging on the pipes objects will move and then this is the most terrifying in my opinion there's hysterical laughter from empty rooms Oh, hell no. I can't. The, the, that would that is what would make me go, okay, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> you got me. The, I don't. It's something about, like, that sinister <gasps> laughter or just creepy. Like, I don't know. That just gives me chills. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, that is my telling of, and it's a very short, I know it seems long, but in terms of the information about this place, like, oh, it's gosh, a very yeah. short version. There's so much more to this place if you're interested in the history of it definitely go research it i have quite a few resources a lot of them are like blogs sources but i mean the information was consistent among them so either we perpetuated very false information but like the website itself doesn't have a ton on the history in detail or like spooky stories so thought catalog wikipedia america's most haunted the trans allegheny lunatic asylum website world's most haunted 
and Road Unraveled were my sources for this. I had a fun time researching it, but also was really creeped out about it. And then was like drinking wine, which makes me a little extra paranoid. And so I'm like drinking wine and it's like 11 o'clock at night and I'm like finishing. I'm like, I can't do this. So that's the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Definitely go check it out for history tours if you're nearby. Or since by the time we post it, there will still be spooky Halloween tours. If you like spooky, if you uh, like that kind of stuff, go on their tours and it'll be super fun, I think. I've never been. I hope to go. Okay, great. Anyway, that's my story. So my story for spooky time, I am going to tell a little bit about the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville, West Virginia, and all the weird shit and crazy stuff that has happened there. So Very excited. Very, very, very cackle, cackle. So a little backstory on good old West Virginia Penitentiary. You'll hear me call it West Virginia Penitentiary or I'll call it the Moundsville Penitentiary. Either or, it's kind of interchangeable. So, in 1863, West Virginia, as we know, seceded from Virginia at the height of the American Civil War. As so, the new state had a shortage on public institutions, including prisons. From 1863 to 1866, then-Governor Arthur I. Borman lobbied the West Virginia legislature for a penitentiary, but was repeatedly denied. They stated that... He first could send the prisoners that would be held or need to be held to other two institutions outside of the state, but then they directed him to start using the existing county jails, which, of course, turned out to be inadequate. Couldn't really, you know, compensate. After nine inmates had escaped in 1865 from the different jails, the local press took up the cause and the legislature legislature finally took action on it. On February 7th, 1866, the state legislature approved the purchase of land in Moundsville for the purpose of constructing a state prison. So they had purchased 10 acres just outside of the city limits of Moundsville for $3,000, which in today's money is, I have no idea. So... (laughs) Moundsville proved an attractive site as it was approximately 12 miles south of the then state capital of West Virginia. Wheeling. That wheeling feeling. If you don't live in West Virginia, you probably don't know this. West Virginia actually has had two state capitals. It was originally in Wheeling. Then it moved to Charleston. And then it moved back to Wheeling. And then the capital of Wheeling burnt down. And so they moved it on back to Charleston because Charleston was a more central location. There you go. There's your... The state built a temporary wooden prison nearby that summer because, you know, wood's going to house them that great. This, in turn, gave prison officials time to assess what the design they would use would be. They chose a modified version of the Northern Illinois Penitentiary that was located in Joliet, which was a Gothic Revival architecture. Well, it says that it exhibited as much as possible great strength and conveyed to the mind a cheerless blink indicative of the misery which awaits the unhappy being who enters within its walls. So basically Terrifying. they wanted gothic revival because they wanted you to realize you're fucked when you're coming in. Okay. So 
So the first building that was constructed on the site was the North Wagon Gate. And it is made with hand-cut sandstone because apparently back in the 1860s when they were building all these big-ass buildings, they were like, yeah, we're going to use all this sandstone that's in this state. And it was actually quarried from a local site to Moundsville. The state used prison labor during the construction process. And work continued on this first phase until 1876. So it took pretty much 10 years for that first phase to be done. Once it was completed, the total cost was $363,061. In addition to the North Wagon Gate, there was now North and South cell block areas, both measuring 300 feet by 52 feet. South Hall had 224 cells, and those cells were 7 foot by 4 foot. And North Hall had a kitchen, dining area, hospital, and chapel. A four-story tower connecting the two was the admin building, like the administration building. It measured 75 feet by 75 feet, and it included spaces for female inmates and personal living quarters for the warden and his family. So in that spot where the admin was, they actually housed female inmates in there. Were there a lot of those at that time? I don't think so. I think it was literally just kind of like a... A very small, insignificant amount. Yeah. The facility officially opened in that year. So it officially opened in 18, what did I say, 76? Yeah. And it had a prison population of 251 male inmates, including some who had helped construct the prison where they were incarcerated. So they got to build it and then they got to live there. (laughs) The operation of this facility was kind of In addition to construction, the inmates had other jobs to do in support of the prison. So basically it was much like Weston. It was really self-sustaining, which I believe was like the model for a lot of these like early places like this. It was. So some of the industries in the early 1900s that were within the prison walls include a carpentry shop, a paint shop, a wagon shop, a stone yard, a brickyard, a blacksmith, a tailor, a baker, and a hospital. So they had all that like within the prison walls. At the same time, revenue from the prison farm and inmate labor helped the prison financially. And it was virtually self-sufficient, like I said. A prison coal mine was actually located a mile away and it opened in 1921. And this mine helped fill some of the prison's energy needs. And saved the state of West Virginia an estimated 14000 a year. Some inmates were even allowed to stay at the miners camp under the supervision of a mine foreman who was not a prison employee. Conditions in the earlier 20th century were actually fairly good. Of course, that was according to the warden's report. But in his report, he stated both the quantity and the quality of all the purchases of material, food, and clothing have been very gradually but steadily improved. While the discipline has become more nearly perfect and the extraction of labor, extract, exaction? Yeah, exaction of labor less stringent. One big thing was they actually made education a priority for the inmates during that time period. If they had inmates that didn't know how to read or write, mm-hmm. they actually taught them and stuff. So that was good. And they all regularly attended class and they actually finished construction of a school and library on the grounds in 1900 so that they could help to reform and educate inmates. However, the conditions at the prison worsened through the years and the facility would be ranked on the U.S. Department of Justice's top 10 most violent correctional facilities list. One of the more infamous locations in the prison, which had instances of 
gambling, fighting, and raping fellow inmates was a recreation room known as the Sugar Shack. And if you have never heard of the Sugar Shack at Moundsville, the stories I've heard about, I want to go on like one of their tours, but some of the stories that I've heard that come out of the Sugar Shack are like, in 1929, the state decided to double the size of the penitentiary because they were starting to experience overcrowding as a huge problem. The five by seven foot cells were too small to hold three prisoners at a time because that's how they were doing it. They were getting so crowded that they had three prisoners per cell. But until they finished the expansion, there was no other options. Now on to some notable inmates. One notable inmate in the early 20th century was labor activist Eugene V. Debs. And he served time there from April 13th to June 14th of 1919. Once June 14th, 1919 hit. He was actually transferred to a prison in Atlanta. He was being held on charges of violating violating the Espionage Act of 1917. They tried to say he was a spy. It was because he was a labor activist and he was trying to get unions oh, formed. Okay. So, like, literally, if you were trying to form a union during that they time period in the U.S., they tried to pretty much say you were a spy and tried to fucking throw the book at you. Also, he was not held there, but in 1983, convicted multiple murderer... Charles Manson requested to be transferred to this prison to be near his family he had in West Virginia. I was going to say, I didn't include this. He was at uh, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. He's their most infamous inmate because at some point they just like... He was a patient there. there? Well, they I think they just kind of put him in there. because Ooh, he, shit. It was after his mom and her whatever got arrested for whatever they were doing and they sent him to live with family and he was doing fine and mm-hmm. then at some point they were just like, fuck this. <laughs> He's fucking crazy. Yeah, so I, that must... <laughs> I think that was the precursor to... Yeah. But yeah, and I didn't include that, but that's... Yes. So, he was just trying to go everywhere, man. So in 83, old Charlie Manson was trying to be get his ass transferred to Weston, or to Weston, to Moundsville, but they denied it, thank God. I mean... <laughs> we talked a little bit about how prison was like crowded AF, it was horrible. To give you kind of perspective on that, when they closed the prison down in 1995, they had... They had 670-some inmates still and only 32 staff. At its height... Total staff? When it closed in 1995, they had 32 total staff to 670-some inmates. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. At its highest point, it reached... In the 1960s, the prison population peaked at about 2,000 inmates. And even then, they had probably about... I want to say about 100 staff, maybe. The population numbers with the uneven staff ratio was one of many reasons it was shut down. It was also shut down because the place was just deteriorating like crazy. Upkeep was not, it wasn't there. They determined that the cell sizes were way too small because they were still five by seven foot cells for like two people. It says the fate of the prison was sealed in 1986, ruling by the West Virginia Supreme Court, which stated that confinement to the five by seven-foot cells constituted cruel and unusual punishment. And within nine years of that, which, like I said, in 1985, the West Virginia pen was closed as a prison. And most of the the inmates actually got transferred to either Mount Olive Correctional or in Fayette County or, like, smaller correctional facilities. Even some, like, as close as a mile away to Moundsville, there's, like, a small regional jail up there. So, back to some of the crazy bullshit that has happened at Moundsville because, oh, boy, oh, fucking boy. Yeah, the one story is that really, like, made me go, holy fuck, Mm -hmm. is rough. 
so they have actually had a breakout there. There was a prison break in 1979. And what happened was on November 7th, 1979, 15 prisoners escaped from the prison. One of the escapees was Ronald Turney Williams, and he was serving time for murdering a Beckley police officer, Beckley, West Virginia police officer. He managed to steal a prison guard service weapon in the escape and upon reaching the streets of Moundsville, encountered 23-year-old off-duty West Virginia state trooper Philip Kesner, who was driving past the prison with his wife. Trooper Kesner saw the escapees and attempted to take action against against them. The prisoners pulled him from his car and Williams shot him. Trooper Kesner returned fire at the fleeing suspects despite being mortally wounded. Williams remained at large for 18 months after he broke out and shot that trooper. That's terrifying. And he would send taunting notes to the authorities and making the F he made the FBI's 10 most wanted list during that time period. And he would send taunting notes. Like he would send letters and be like, fuck y'all. You ain't gonna get me. During that time, he actually murdered a man named John Buncheck in Scottsdale, Arizona during a robbery. He was connected to crimes in Colorado and Pennsylvania. Then in New York City in 1981, he had a shootout with federal agents at the George Washington Hotel in New York City. And he was apprehended and returned to West Virginia to complete several life sentences. Arizona had sought his extradition for his execution But as of October 13th, 2019, he remains in West Virginia custody. So he's still in prison in West Virginia. At the time, Marshall County Sheriff Robert Leitner was very critical about poor police communications during the break. And the sheriff's office and local police did not learn about the escape from the state police. They first heard it over the police scanner. (laughs) Oh, I love the state. (laughs) It said that it was a good 20 minutes before we knew about the escape. If somebody had notified us, there's a good chance the sheriff's department and the Moundsville police could have been on the scene while all the prisoners were still on the block. He was also critical of the four-state manhunt that followed when convicted murderers David Morgan and Ronald T. Williams, along with convicted rapist Harold Gowers Jr., remained at large. So we had two convicted murderers and a convicted rapist that escaped and were just roaming around. There was a riot... In 1986, so on January 1st, 1986, because let's bring in the new year in a good way, apparently, (laughs) it is one of the most infamous riots in prison history, or in recent prison history. The West Virginia Penitentiary was undergoing many changes and problems. Security had become loose in all the areas since it was a cons prison, quote unquote. Most of the locks in the cells had been picked and inmates roamed the halls freely. Yeah, when I say that conditions deteriorated like fucking crazy they could pick the locks yeah because it was like the old lock systems oh, they yeah. never really updated any of the lock systems i mean people get crafty as years go on so they knew how to pick the locks and they pretty much had free roam bad plumbing and insects had caused rapid spreading of various diseases at that point the prison was holding more than 2,000 men and crowding was an issue another major contribution to the rats cause was the fact that it was a holiday Many of the officers had called off work and prisoners planned to conduct their uprising on that specific day. So they had, like, the prisoners had all pretty much plotted it out together. At around 5.30 p.m. on January 1st, 1986, 20 inmates, known as a group called the Avengers, stormed the mess hall where Captain Glassick and others were on duty. Within seconds, Glassick and five other officers and a food service worker were tackled and slammed to the floor Inmates put homemade knives to their throats and handcuffed them with their own handcuffs. 
Although several hostages were taken throughout the day, none of them were seriously injured. However, over the course of the two-day upheaval, three inmates were killed for an assortment of reasons. So now, I'm going to tell you one of the stories about an inmate who was killed. And this is was an article I happened to find. It was like through the AP, but it was hostage forced to watch prison murder. So... This is a story from January 5th, 1986 by Martha Bryson Hodel. And it states, uh, One of the guards held hostage by rioting prisoners was forced to watch as jeering inmates carved up a prisoner accused of being an informer and another guard saw an inmate butchered. The body of inmate Kent Sly, S-L-I-E, a convicted child molester and killer was then dragged up and down a cell block as other prisoners kicked and spit on it. Kicked and spit on him? Yeah. The guard said a anonymous correctional officer who saw this, and he actually was treated in the hospital, it says, for an anxiety reaction and influenza. But this... Officer was one of 16 hostages that were seized in the New Year's Day uprising by inmates. And like I said, they kind of made had homemade knives and spears that they used to control the guards. But, I mean, it even goes on to say that they had him blindfolded, but they had... He would, like, tilt his head back so he could see what's going on, and that's part of how he saw that. Mm. But there was one inmate, and this one's pretty gruesome, so if you don't want to listen, that's fine. Just skip about 30 seconds, probably. Although the, it says, although the corrections department policy prohibits officers from speaking to reporters, several who agreed to speak without being identified said that the hostages witnessed the deaths of Sly and fellow inmate Jeff Atkinson, who was convicted of murdering a pregnant woman. Atkinson's murder was seen by a guard who had tilted his head back so he could peer out from behind a blindfold. One correctional officer said he said the inmates apparently cut out Atkinson's heart. He saw blood all over. Then he heard one guy say, it's amazing how this little thing will keep a fellow alive. Then another one said, well, it won't keep him alive anymore. The officer said that he was told by witnesses that they butchered Jeff and then carried his heart and guts all over. Guards said Atkinson had been a prison informer and had supplied information that foiled several plans to smuggle drugs and weapons into the prison. And they believe that's why the fellow inmates killed him. Guards' accounts were confirmed by an outside official who said he had spoken to hostages who witnessed the killings. The official also spoke on condition not he not be identified. So that prison break was fucked up. Yeah. To say the least. It was, I mean, any prison break's going to be rough, don't get me wrong, but it was bad. So a little bit now, since we're going from that to executions at the prison. Because if you didn't know, uh, West Virginia actually allowed execution of prisoners that were tried and that was their sentence up until I believe it was the 60s. At first it was hanging. Right. Um, so from 1899 to 1959, oh, wow. 94 men were executed at the prison and hanging was the method of execution until 1949. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And 85 men actually were executed by hanging during that time period. The public could attend hangings. Why would you to. Which, well, apparently people were bored back then. I don't know. Because they were public, they were open to the public until June 19th, 1931. On that date, Frank Heyer was executed for murdering his wife. And the only reason that they stopped making them public is because when the trap door beneath him was opened and his full weight settled into the noose, he was instantly decapitated. Oh. 
So following this event, attendings at hangings was by invitation only. So the last man that was executed by a hanging was Bud Peterson from Logan County, and he was buried in the prison cemetery because his family refused to claim his body. Fun fact about the prison cemetery, it's actually located about five miles from the prison, and it's just this big section of a cemetery that has the prisoners, and the markers that they used literally are like license plate markers. Like it has their names on it as opposed to like a headstone. They get, like, pretty much license plates to mark where they're at. But then, beginning in 1951, electrocution became the means of execution. Yay! (laughs) Um, And the electric chair, do you know what it is nicknamed? The one that was at Moundsville? No. Old Sparky! And it was originally built by an inmate there. Why? That inmate's name is Paul Glenn. Paul Glenn, you were a sick man. (laughs) And nine men were actually electrocuted via Old Sparky before the state prohibited capital punishment entirely in 1965. And the original chair, Old Sparky, is on display currently in the facility and is included in the official tour of Moundsville oh. State Penitentiary. I didn't see that. Yeah, it's, it's bad. Ugh. So, another story of a inmate who apparently his fellow inmates went hardcore with the whole snitches get stitches thing. Prisoner R.D. Wall, who was a snitch, suffered punishment from fellow inmates. Wall was jumped by three inmates, cut and stabbed, and basically butchered into pieces. I mean, I hate to go too much in on this because it is kind of gruesome. It is. And he was actually one of the more famous, well, I hate to say more famous, more known about killings that happened in the Sugar Shack. Like, yeah, more infamous killings. There we go. Thank you. Um, But his killing is one of the more infamous that happened in the sugar shack at the prison. So they called it the sugar shack because of all the fights and rapes and murders that occurred, which I don't know. Makes sense. I guess because they thought it, they were getting some sugar or something. I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, the whole place. Like, when you look at, like, the history of the prison and stuff and just, like, the different stuff that people have put up about it. Like, they're like, well, here's some, you know, more hot spots for paranormal activity and yada yada. It's like, the whole fucking place would be a hot spot for paranormal activity, first of all. <laughs> One of the more horrible slash famous forms of punishment that was invented there was a kick and jenny. It's an instrument used to punish. So it basically is this right there, if you can see it. It's something to help hold someone over, like bent over on something. It cuffs them down by the wrists and ankles, keeps them bent over while someone else whips them. I'll put a picture of this up on the... um, stuff for y'all so you can see what I'm talking about. thank you. But that was used to, like, whip inmates, and it was created there because, you know, let's just be creepy. We got bored of fighting bears. (laughs) 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 Yeah. That's the nasty stuff about the prison. Like I said, it closed in 95, so nowadays, um, the prison is mainly used for tours. They do a haunted house there that's apparently scary AF. But they also do training. A lot of prisons that are in this state and jails in this state, they will hold training exercises on like mock riots, um, stuff like that at the prison. So, I mean, because that's a good place to do it. One, because it was already a prison. Two, because you can, you know, kind of jack it up a little bit, but not too much but they'll send like guards from other prisons and jails throughout the state and i think even throughout the country to come up there do these um mock riots um and all the drills associated with them it helps law enforcement will do sessions up there where they'll do training and stuff 
So it's actually pretty neat. But of course, their biggest thing is tourism now. They right. do tours year round in the haunted attraction, which is called the Dungeon of Horrors, um, which I've got to go to at some point. So that is um, Moundsville for you. It's a fucked up place, to say the least. It's a prison, so it's going to be a fucked up place, but it's a really fucked up place. Yeah. There you go. Thank Hooray. You for sharing that gory story. You're welcome. <laughs> so this week's cold case kind of keeps in our theme. Um, this is about the suspicious murders that have happened within the last two years at the Lewis A. Johnson VA Medical Center in Clarksburg, West Virginia. So I may refer to it as the VA hospital or just the VA. But this is, I think we have two or three VA hospitals in the state, or is there just that one? We don't have a lot. We have I at least remember. we have at least two, but <laughs> I say that because that requires a lot of people in the state to drive long distances to get their medical care because there have been an estimated 10 to 11 patient homicides that have happened in the last two years. Most of them from what I can tell from the articles, because this is an ongoing case, are due to like an insulin overdose. And these are people who are not diabetic. They're being injected with insulin, which causes them to pass away. And it's not... It's something you should be able to catch, but if you're not paying complete attention, especially if they're old, it's not something that maybe you look for. So two of the victims that whose names have been released, one of them is retired Army Sergeant Felix Kirk McDermott. He was 82 when he died from being injected in his abdomen with insulin in April of 2018. But it wasn't until October of 2018 that his body was exhumed for autopsy by the VA office. And his family wasn't notified of anything they were just told that he died and then they were like oh by the way we need to exhume his body in October I'm sorry what yeah he didn't have a history of insulin meds or anything that would result in him needing insulin but it was October when the family was notified they were being it was being looked at as a homicide the other person was George Nelson Shaw senior he was 81 and I didn't see where what date he passed away but his body was exhumed in January of 2019. The VA did not report any suspicious deaths to police, and they're legally required to. There were deaths staying back as far as June 2017. The person of interest no longer works there, according to these articles, but I have an anonymous source who told me that the rumor among, I guess, some of the medical community uh, in the northern part of the state, because, you know, small towns, they believe that it's a CNA which is very, very concerning because CNA should not have access to any of these things Mm -hmm. that are being used to murder these people. So if that is true, that's concerning because of the practices that are currently happening at the VA hospital. This is an ongoing case. They haven't announced everything, obviously, because they don't want to release everything, but they supposedly have a person of interest. One thing I will note is that Senator Manchin is really involved because he's a member of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, so he's really concerned about trying to make sure that something's being done. He's basically been on every article that I've seen, and Shelley Moore Capito also put out a statement from her office. So there are 
these people, public figures that are concerned that this is happening and that it's not going to get totally overlooked. But it's currently being investigated. If you had a family member or know of any information that could help with this, I've I have two different places that I think would be the best to call. The first one is the Inspector General's office in Charleston. Their number is 304-558-1970. And then I went ahead and listed Senator Manchin's office because he seems to be really committed to making sure that like this is getting investigated properly and that there are consequences for people's actions. So I have three of his office numbers <laughs> just because you never know. So he, and I think also too, part of the reason is he's from Fairmont, lived in Fairmont. That's his district. And so Fairmont and Clarksburg are like, they're bordering counties, Marion and Harrison County. So I think that's also too why he might be very um, invested in this. But his Fairmont office number is 304-368-0567. The Charleston office is 304-342-5855. And his DC office is 202-224-3954. This is really concerning that someone was getting away with this for this long. And if it was a CNA, that they had access to these things. And I just, you know, these, and I believe... So far, what I've seen, it's men. It's it's male veterans. You know, they're old and just trying to, you know, the VA is one of the few places that is able to provide the medical care where they're not going to have super huge bills because healthcare is a wreck in this country in the first place. So, you know, it's so sad that this is happening to them and that their families weren't aware and they just thought that they, you know, died and they went yeah. in there. Now they're having to like relive all that trauma Ugh. because they're being told that they just didn't die because they were older or because of something else. It was a homicide. So if you know of anything, please contact those numbers. I really hope that this gets resolved soon for the families that were involved for their sake. But I mean, it's 10 to 11 patients. I'm not sure how many bodies have been exhumed or anything. Yeah, that's that's our cold case for this week. This is from articles from NBC News, NPR, and WBOI. But there's a couple other articles. I mean, it's made national headlines. So, so on up note, Nikki, up note. what is your podcast recommendation for the week? Uh, my podcast rec this week is The Haunted Hill House of Horror, which is a what? comedy audio drama because we know I love me some audio dramas. It's about this group that, it just came out literally a few weeks ago and they are releasing episodes weekly, but it's about this group that works in a haunted house and it's right now they're like each week telling about how like they're setting up for haunted house mm-hmm. and rehearsals and it's... I mean, it's cute. It's a cute little funny podcast. I love it. Nothing big and special on, like, you know, sound effects or anything like that, but it's it's funny. It's funny. It's good. And as somebody who actually has worked in a haunted house, it's like, yeah, I can relate to some of this shit for right. sure. <laughs> so, but I love it. It's so fantastic. And it's called The Haunted Hell House of Horror. That's awesome. I'll need to listen to that podcast. My recommendation is definitely a true crime because I'm a junkie, but the thing about Pam is a new podcast. It's a short podcast. Mm-hmm. It's only a couple episodes, but Dateline oh. NBC does this podcast. And when I first started listening to it, I was like, I mean, you know, it's whatever, you know, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's just another true crime story. Yeah. I apologize guys. The dog's barking in the background. <laughs> 
But I was like, it's just another true crime thing. And it seemed like jealous somebody, you know, actually did. But then you get to the end. I have, I'm only on the first episode. I know, I'm not going to say what this I'm I'm only on the first episode. Basically what happened is this woman was murdered Uh and they blamed her husband. Yeah. But then you're wondering why Pam, why the whole thing is called the thing about Pam. Yeah. I'm still on the first episode. I'm not, that's all I'm going to (laughs) say. It's very interesting. It's it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. There are actually still ongoing investigations related to the cases. So I think it's only about six episodes, and the episodes are like 30 minutes each, like at the max. So it actually didn't take me that long to binge. I highly recommend it. And plus it's Dateline, so I mean, you can't beat that can't quality. Like it's, no. and, I mean, but yeah, that's my recommendation for this week. Stay safe during Halloween. Make smart choices. Uh, don't drink and drive. Don't, don't, don't eat razor blade candy. Don't eat razor blade candy. Um. <laughs> what else? Halloween. Um, stay warm. Don't be the virgin that lights the black flame candle. Oh my gosh, um, don't do it, guys. Peer pressure. That I mean, should be the peer pressure example they show kids in school. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't like the black flame <laughs> candle. <laughs> Little Thora Birch, man, in oh that movie. Gosh. She is adorable. And, and, and She's like, my brother's a virgin and he lit the black flame candle. <laughs> yeah, watch Hocus Pocus. Stay don't like the black flame candle. Stay safe. Beware of black cats that actually talk to you because they're probably going to lead you into a cemetery and then but zombies he, will pop out of the Zachary ground and help Binks you. Zachary Binks was just trying to Zachary help. Binks. Zachary Binks, what are you? A little Scottish. Don't judge my accent. <laughs> I'm a hick. Scottish hick. Well, yeah. Just remember, be kind, rewind. Um... <laughs> Is that our sign off? Be kind, rewind. Be kind, rewind. Okay, be kind. And if you say something mean, rewind and be nice. Be kind, don't be a douche nozzle. (laughs) No. (laughs) Just say, be kind, y'all. Yeah, I like that. Or we still don't have a sign off. All right, y'all. All All right, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Bye. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Appalachian Crime Trail podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to rate us on iTunes and subscribe and download new episodes. You can find us anywhere podcasts are found. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our email is AppalachianCrimeTrail at gmail.com.